welcome back everybody to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. Once again, your host, Drew Von Sayo, set to bring you the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pittsburgh Pirates. Starting today with the Pittsburgh Pirates, as the Pirates have lost yet another series early on this season, dropping two of three to the San Diego Padres, a series that concluded yesterday afternoon. Now, to make matters worse for the Pirates, yesterday's contest, the rubber match, saw them facing off against one of their former pitchers, that being none other than Joe Musgrove, making his second appearance against the Pirates at PNC Park, and Musgrove went on an absolute tear for the visiting Padres. Seven innings of one-run ball, conceded seven hits, didn't walk anyone, and struck out eight in the process, dropping his season ERA down to 1.97. Right now, the Pirates would kill to have someone in their rotation with an ERA below three, much less having an ERA of 1.97 the way that Joe Musgrove currently does. That is the current state of the Pirates rotation, and I've said that before. I've said it many times before, so I'm not going to sit here and lecture about it again. But what I am going to talk about is, as of right now, this Joe Musgrove trade did not work out the way that the Pirates would have liked it to. Aside from the fact that they got David Bednar out of it. You got Bednar, Omar Cruz, Hudson Head. Of course, Andy Rodriguez came to the Pirates from the New York Mets. But this is not all that good of a trade for the Pirates for the time being. Yes, they got an elite reliever, should be closer in David Bednar, and I say should be because Derek Shelton has not really used Bednar too much in the actual closer role the way that he should be. But aside from that, Omar Cruz still down in the minor leagues several years away. Hudson Head, same scenario, and Andy Rodriguez, the same scenario. So you have just one of those pieces in the major leagues right now, and this trade happened several seasons ago. It was This is Musgrove's second season in San Diego. And now the Pirates are feeling the price that they paid to get rid of Joe Musgrove with this trade occurring on January 19th, 2021. The Pirates could have used Musgrove last year. They could have used Musgrove this year. And with the Pirates' state of the rotation again, and I hate to go back to that, but when you see Musgrove performing the way that he is, and you see how poor the Pirates' rotation is outside of Jose Quintana, it's really a head-scratcher as to what the ultimate goal was there of dealing Joe Musgrove. Especially when Musgrove wasn't trying to force his way out. He didn't request a trade. He didn't visibly hate the sight of being or the thought of being in Pittsburgh in the way that Garrett Cole did. 
had to think about how I wanted to appropriately word that there, but Joe Musgrove enjoyed his time in Pittsburgh, even going as far as saying that the time he spent in Pittsburgh was the highlight of his career because he got the opportunity to pitch in the rotation consistently. He found success. Of course, the only thing missing during his tenure was the team success. But again, Joe Musgrove should be a Pittsburgh Pirate. And I will sit here and argue that Ben Charrington has done so many wonderful things for this team, for this organization, and to reinstill some hope to the city for this franchise. But trading Joe Musgrove was not one of those things. And I know you can sit there and say, well, if we kept Musgrove, we wouldn't have David Bednar. If we didn't trade Joe Musgrove, our catching depth wouldn't be as big in the minor leagues. Okay, and what's to say that any of those three prospects that I mentioned, Omar Cruz, Andy Rodriguez, along with Hudson Head, what's to say any of them pan out? I hope they do, but what's the guarantee that they pan out? There is none. So you're telling me you're going to trade Musgrove for Bednar, assuming that those three don't pan out? I mean, you're giving up an elite starting pitcher for an elite closer? I mean, the closer doesn't matter if you can't get to that point because your starting pitching is so bad. That's the point I'm trying to make here is that the Pirates in this trade didn't really prioritize things because Musgrove, yes, he's not necessarily a spring chicken anymore. But if you think about it, neither is JT Brubaker. Jose Quintana absolutely isn't. Zach Thompson isn't the spring chicken. Neither is Will Crow. Musgrove is right around the same age as Crow and Thompson. So what was the point in trading here? I don't genuinely understand why Musgrove needed to be dealt and why Ben Charrington felt that trading Musgrove was the right move going forward, especially with how deep the Pirates are in terms of outfield prospects in their minor league system. At the time, catching was a little bit of a need, but... Ben Charrington could have found other ways to address it besides bringing in Andy Rodriguez and having to deal Joe Musgrove in the process. Now, not to be too negative here, but this also needs to be addressed because Derek Shelton's lineup construction continues to be extremely poor, continues to hurt the Pirates offensively. If you just looking back at yesterday's game against the Padres, the Pirates seven, eight, and nine hitters were Jack Sawinski, Cole Tucker, and Roberto Perez. Roberto Perez has cooled off lately. He's not been able to replicate the hot start that he had at the plate. Cole Tucker, you already know how I feel about him in terms of what he brings to the table, and if you aren't aware, the answer is, to be quite frank, absolutely nothing. Now, Jack Sawinski did have a two-for-three day yesterday, batting average, sitting at 217 on the season, and I'll give Sawinski the benefit of the doubt, as I said before, because he's a young prospect, still growing, trying to make the jump from double-A Altoona. But previously, we've seen in that seven spot, we've seen Josh Van Meter, 
We've seen Andrew Knapp. I mean, those guys are not getting it done. Josh Van Meter right now hitting 171 for the Pirates. I don't even know what Andrew Knapp is hitting. He's probably not even hitting 100, if I'm being quite honest. I'll find the exact number here as I continue to speak. 167. So I was, in fact, wrong, but still not a great batting average for Andrew Knapp. So, again, it goes back to the idea of why does Derek Shelton continue to play these guys when they are not producing at the plate. And I'll even throw Yoshi Tsutsugo into this category. I know I talked about him Friday, but he's in this category as well with Andrew Knapp, with Cole Tucker, with Josh Van Meter. These guys are not producing at the plate. Why do you continue to consistently play them? You have to minimize their playing time so that they take advantage of their opportunities when given it. If you start someone like Yoshi Tsutsugo once every four days, and in that one game he plays, he gets two hits every single time, then you start to gradually increase his playing time once again. You don't continue to just throw him out there day after day because he gets two hits in one game and then over the next four goes 0 for 11. I mean, that's essentially what the Pirates are doing. And there's too much rotation in this Pirates lineup. You'll see somebody like Diego Castillo have a 3 for 4 day playing shortstop, and then you turn around the next day and he's not in the lineup. So then my question becomes, is this Derek Shelton trying to find value in what he's given? Or is he being told to play these guys? Is he being told to play Josh Van Meter two out of three days in a series? Is he being told that he has to turn to Andrew Knapp once or twice per week? Because it's just not adding up for a manager that's going to go out there and say, we're trying to be competitive this year and we're trying to win ball games to go out there and repetitively start those guys day in and day out. I can understand, you know, if you want to do the traditional Sunday lineup the way that Clint Hurdle did, fine. Obviously, fans are going to complain about it, but it's much more reasonable than seeing somebody like Josh Van Meter in the lineup on a Thursday night game in the third piece of a three-game set. That does not make any sense to me whatsoever. You are listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. When we return, we'll be discussing... Rounds two through seven in terms of the NFL draft for the Pittsburgh Steelers and some of the biggest draft surprises of the 2022 NFL draft as a whole right here on the Three Rivers Talk Show. This is Bethany College Online Radio, a service of the Communications and Media Arts Department.
And we're back here on the Three Rivers Talk Show for the latest now with the Pittsburgh Steelers looking at rounds two through seven in terms of who the Steelers selected this season. Now, starting in the second round, the Steelers went out and grabbed George Pickens, wide receiver out of Georgia. Now, I mentioned this on Friday that there were three possibilities in terms of positions that the Steelers were going to take in rounds two and three Friday night. It was either going to be wide receiver, defensive lineman, or offensive lineman, more specifically offensive tackle. Well, don't you know, round two, wide receiver, round three, defensive tackle. And Pickens is an elite receiving threat for the Steelers, somebody who can man the slot, somebody who can be lined up out wide, and he's a downfield target for whoever it is under center, whether it be Mitch Trubisky, whether it be Kenny Pickett. And Matt Canada is very excited to have Pickens in the offense because some executives and scouts had Pickens as the most talented wide receiver group in this class. Wide receiver in this group, I should say. And... The only downside was his off-field issues, but Mike Tomlin is the guy who can put that to bed. I mean, he's dealt with a lot of off-field issues over the past several years. I don't even need to mention names. You already know who I'm referencing. But hopefully George Pickens can be an elite threat for the Steelers in 2022 and beyond. Round three, the Steelers went with... DeMarvin Leal, defensive lineman out of Texas A&M. Again, because nobody knows what's going to happen with Stephon Tewitt. But DeMarvin Leal is somebody that can be a threat for the Steelers' front three, even if he's not starting right away. Whether it's Hayward, Alulu, somebody like Isaiah Loudermilk, Chris Wormley, if those guys are going to get the early nod over DeMarvin Leal, that's fine. But... DeMarvin Leal is somebody that you can work with and develop because Leal is only 6'4", 283 pounds. The weight, a little bit of more of a concern than the height, so he's going to have to get a little bit bigger. But Leal's going to start out as a defensive end, according to Terrell Austin, Steelers' defensive coordinator. So it's going to be someone that you see quite frequently because defensive ends get subbed in and out multiple times throughout the game. Round four, the Steelers turned to another wide receiver, brought in Calvin Austin III out of Memphis. Now, Calvin Austin fits the mold of a slot receiver. 5'8", 170 pounds, extremely fast. Sauce Gardner, who was an early first-round pick, was talking just the other day and made mention that out of any receiver he had to cover this past season or in the entirety of his collegiate career, Calvin Austin III was one of, if not the most difficult for him to cover because he is so fast, excellent footwork. I mean, he was a sprinter on the track team before deciding that he wanted to go play wide receiver for Memphis football. But... Again, it gives the Steelers another option at the wide receiver position. The team didn't have a fifth-round pick, so we get to the sixth round. 
No surprise to anybody, Connor Hayward, the fullback tight end out of Michigan State. Again, everybody should have seen this coming. We knew it was going to happen. It's the feel-good story that the Steelers are all about. Whether or not Connor Hayward makes the roster or the practice squad, only time will tell. Now, round seven, 225th overall, Steelers brought in Mark Robinson, the linebacker out of Ole Miss. The Steelers already have Devin Bush and Miles Jack lined up for the 2022 season to start. So Mark Robinson's going to be a developmental player, may not even make the team. He might start out on the practice squad, but he's somebody that you could take a flyer on late in the draft in the seventh round. But just being aware that there is going to be a steep learning curve. And then the final selection for the Steelers, seventh round, 241st overall, Chris Oladokun, a quarterback out of South Dakota State. This is your fourth quarterback right here, something that Kevin Colbert said they were going to do from the very beginning. Now, of course, this pick being made because of the unfortunate passing of Dwayne Haskins, he would have been the fourth arm along with Pickett, Trubisky, and Rudolph. But now Oladokun brought in out of South Dakota State. He can throw the ball. He's very mobile. And he's somebody that is going to challenge whether it be Mason Rudolph, Mitch Trubisky, Kenny Pickett for one of those backup spots. Of course, let's be real here. The Steelers aren't going to cut Kenny Pickett. They're not going to cut Mitch Trubisky out of training camp. So really, it comes down to either Mason Rudolph or Ola Dokun for the final spot in terms of being the Steelers' third quarterback and then who is ultimately going to be the odd man out. If it's Ola Dokun, you could very well see him come back and be on the practice squad. If it's Mason Rudolph, he's gone. I mean, he's not going to take a practice squad position. He'll try to find a backup spot where he could potentially compete for the starting position somewhere else in the league. Overall, I think this is a very solid draft class for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Would I have liked to have seen them draft a corner? Yes. Would I have liked to have seen them draft an offensive tackle? Absolutely. But you know what? You can't win them all. And the Steelers, they went out there. They brought in their number one guy, Kenny Pickett. They got him. They got an elite threat in George Pickens. They got Calvin Austin, who is a speed demon for the Steelers. They got so many players that can help them this season and moving forward. And I'm very excited about what impact they all can have in 2022 and beyond. Now, one of the biggest draft surprises was that Carson Strong went undrafted. Of course, after Pickett was selected 20th overall, Malik Willis was the next quarterback. Rather, it was Desmond Ritter who was the next quarterback off the board going to the Atlanta Falcons in the second round. Malik Willis didn't go until the third round to Tennessee. But I was very surprised that Carson Strong didn't get drafted and ultimately ended up signing an undrafted free agent contract with the Philadelphia Eagles. Because as I've said before, I would have rather taken Carson Strong over Malik Willis. And I feel like a lot of teams realized that Malik Willis was not worth all of the hype that he had going into the draft because he's too much of a project. And I think that Carson Strong is much more NFL-ready than Malik Willis. 
So that was why I'm surprised that Carson Strong wasn't even selected. I was surprised that Malik Willis fell to the third round, not because I think he's a good player, because to be quite frank, I don't as of right now. That can certainly change as he develops. But given all of the hype around him, I was truly expecting Malik Willis to be taken late in the first round, early in the second. But again, like I said, I would have rather taken Pickett over Willis. The Steelers wholeheartedly agree. I would have rather taken Desmond Ritter over Malik Willis. And I mentioned that well before the draft. The NFL executives agreed with that statement because Ritter was taken in the second, Willis didn't go until the third. Teams want NFL-ready quarterbacks, and if you're not NFL-ready the way that Malik Willis is currently, teams aren't going to take a chance on you early in the draft. You're going to be a day two or a day three selection. Of course, Ritter is going to probably compete with Matt Ryan, but may also be someone who sits for a year or two before given a true opportunity to start. And if that's the case, then that's how things fall for Desmond Ritter. But Ritter is much more NFL-ready right now than Malik Willis. And I truly believe most, if not all, of the quarterbacks in this draft class were the same way, given that Malik Willis has accuracy issues. He struggles making more than just the primary read. All he has is a strong arm and the ability to run. I mean, he makes one 65, 70-yard throw at the combine or at his pro day, and everybody thinks he's the greatest thing since Tom Brady. No, he's not. Malik Willis is a project, and the Titans are going to really have to work and try to develop him moving forward and see how he progresses behind Ryan Tannehill. You are listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio When we return, it's hockey talk the rest of the way as the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs begins tomorrow night. And when we come back, I'll be joined once again by the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette Penguins beat reporter Mike DeFabo. This is the Three Rivers Talk Show, and you're listening to BBN Online Radio.
we're back here on the Three Rivers Talk Show, live on the Bethany Online Radio, talking about the Pittsburgh Penguins. And I'm joined now by the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette beat reporter, Mike DeFabo. Mike, welcome back to the show, and thank you for being here as you're driving to New York. Yeah, absolutely, Drew. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, obviously, the last month of the regular season here for the Penguins wasn't what they expected it to be, but the playoffs are... A different story in terms of you know being able to forget what happened over the last month of the season so how does a team like the penguins leave that behind them and just go into the playoffs with a fresh slate? i mean obviously it's easier said than done but the penguins experience can certainly help in that regard yeah i think that the penguins definitely are approaching this like a clean slate you've heard that term from a couple different players and i think there's really no other choice other than to look at it in that way i mean for most teams, you talk about how you want to be that hot team going into the playoffs. You want to be playing your best hockey over the last month or so. And it would be pretty difficult to argue that the Penguins were doing that. I think it's more realistic to think that they might have played their worst month of hockey than their best month of hockey. So uh, I think, honestly, all you can do is say that it's a clean slate and try to convince yourself that it is because if you look at the recent results, there's not a lot of optimism for the Penguins going into this postseason. So maybe things will be different. We'll have to wait and see. So then, as a result of the bad form over the past month, it's looking like the Penguins, and you just mentioned this as well, they're going into the series as an underdog against the New York Rangers, and that's something that they really haven't experienced in a while. I mean, you'd probably have to go back to 2018 against the Capitals in the second round to really say the Penguins maybe even an underdog based upon this seeding. So with given the fact that the Penguins are on the older side in terms of the age of the squad, what does the fact of being an underdog do to a team like the Penguins? Yeah, I'm kind of curious about that myself. I mean, over pretty much the entire time that Sidney Crosby, Kenny Malkin, and Chris Letang have been together, it's been championship or bust for this team. And there's been a... Uh, massive expectations placed upon these guys' shoulders, and they've largely lived up to it on a number of different occasions. So, Mike Sullivan is fond of talking about teams playing with a free spirit and kind of playing with nothing to lose. I think that the Penguins might be able to do a little bit of that, where they've already lost three or four meetings against the New York Rangers. They're coming into this uh, not playing their best hockey. Maybe just take a little bit of the pressure off yourself and feel like you're playing with a little bit of house money maybe there could be a benefit to that as you're talking about. And in regards to some of the comments that Mike Sullivan has made, more than likely the Penguins without Jason Zucker and Tristan Jari for games one and two of the series here against the Rangers, while the Penguins, they've played some of their best hockey this season with players out of the lineup, it's an entirely different story going into a playoff series without your starting goaltenders. So what do the Penguins have to do differently without Tristan Jari, even though they've been playing in front of Casey Smith for the past few weeks now? Yeah, I, I think the disappointing thing when you talk about losing Tristan Jari is a lot of the Penguins' feeling, I think, was tied to having an all-star caliber netminder. And if the Penguins are going to make a deep run, I imagine Tristan Jari not just playing solidly and redeeming himself for last postseason, but being one of the stars of the team and stealing a couple games or maybe even stealing the series. So while I have some faith in Casey DeSmith that he's not going to be the reason the Penguins lose, 
I also don't have a ton of faith that he's going to be the reason why the Penguins win, that he's going to outdoor Igor Shesterkin. So I think it kind of is going to be multi-pronged here. Uh, the, the Penguins have proven that they can be a good defensive team. It's stingy and structured no matter who the goalie is. I mean, even dating back to last season, uh, Casey DeSmith at one point in late April was leading the league in all the relevant goal stats, goals against the same percentage. And even this year, after being really uh, shaky through the first nine games of the season and being yanked in back-to-back games in mid-January, he responded in decisive fashion over the last several outings. Uh, over his last 17 outings, he has nearly a 9-3 save percentage. He is the third-best save percentage over that span behind only Darcy Kemper from uh, the Colorado Avalanche and Igor Shesterkin, who the Penguins can see who is a net for the New York Rangers. So uh, I think that Casey DeSmith is qualified and capable. I just don't see him as the goalie who's going to go out and steal a series for the Penguins. So it's going to be about playing well in front of him on both sides of the puck for sure will be a huge factor in the series. So then, also the second player mentioned there, Jason Zucker. How do the Penguins try to replace him? I mean, I know they just recently recalled Drew O'Connor from Wilkes-Barre Scranton. You've seen Brock McGinn lined up on Malkin's left wing. You've seen Danton Heinen. I mean, even Ricard Raquel going back to earlier in the season. So how are the Penguins going to bolster that second line to ensure that Malkin is playing with two strong wingers. Yeah, well, first of all, when we're talking about Jason Zucker, like, look back to last year. He scored nine goals in 38 games, and the word that he used was awful last year to describe that production. Well, this year he has one fewer goal in three more games, so you can use whatever word you want to describe that kind of production. That said, not having him in the lineup leaves a massive hole in the middle six, and the Penguins don't have a lot of good solutions there, so, uh, like, even if you would have wanted more based on what the Penguins gave up to acquire Jason Booker, he still is an important piece when you're filling out a complete deep roster with four complete lines. So to answer your question, it looks like Danton Heinen is going to get the nod alongside of getting Malkin and Ricard Raquel. Uh, and he's been uh, a bit up and down. It's actually kind of intriguing to me that maybe three weeks ago, I would have considered to be a leading candidate to be a healthy scratch in a fully healthy lineup. But he's like three goals in four games, and his production really picked up near the end of the regular season. The Penguins aren't counting on him to be a driving force in the top six, but if he can pitch in a little bit, that'll go a long way for the Penguins. And then when we were talking about Casey DeSmith and Tristan Jari, you mentioned Igor Shostakim leading the league over the course of DeSmith's turnaround in terms of goals against average, save percentage, and he has made his presence known in each of the four matchups as the Penguins' lone win. He only conceded one goal, and he unfortunately was suffering the loss because Tristan Jari stole a game like you mentioned you were hoping that he would have done in this playoff series. But how do the Penguins get more creative in finding ways to beat Shesterkin, knowing that he's going into the series with a lot of confidence, not just over the regular season, but also knowing that he's kept the Penguins in check given the amount of talent they have? Well, I think that some of it is just what you would do against any goaltender. So uh, a lot of it is just taking the sight lines away from the goalie, getting guys in front, getting traffic in front. That's always a big key for any goalie, no matter who it is. But the Penguins have discussed that being especially a factor with Shesterkin. The other thing is, the Rangers have had an interesting trend as it, as it pertains to their defense 
and they were a team that gave up a huge number of odd man rushes early on in the season, and they really cleaned that up. But one area they're still not very good at is just their in-zone defense. And if you can keep possession in your offensive zone if you're the Penguins and make them work off the cycle game, you're going to be able to create some high-quality chances from good areas of the ice like the slot. So uh, I think just forcing the Rangers to defend by playing with the puck is going to be a big piece for the Penguins, as it would against any team, but especially against a team of this caliber. And then one of the things that I had noticed over most of the games that the Penguins played against the Rangers was that there were periods of time where they were significantly outshot, even going as far as the entire 60 minutes where they were outshot. Is that just a matter of, like you said, you know, trying to work the puck around in the offensive zone and then ultimately not being able to get a shot off? Or was there more to it than that from the Penguins' perspective? That, that's that you bring up as an interesting one because actually the Rangers have typically given up a huge volume of shots to most of their opponents, but for whatever reason, the Penguins, uh, it's been a different story. They've not been able to accumulate a large shot total. So there's a lot of things you can look at there. For one, they, they're a team that goes for the quality of looks over quantity. So some of that is by their own doing. Maybe they're passing up a whatever, a C-level type of chance looking for the, the grade-A opportunity. So that's part of it. Maybe there needs to be a little bit of a marriage of styles where you don't necessarily look for that great chance of maybe just throw some more pucks on net, hoping for some rebounds and to break down coverages that way. Uh, the other thing is uh, I think that that shot total is a reflection of how the games were played. And the Penguins were severely outplayed, and they didn't even have the puck to shoot it. You can't shoot the puck if you don't have it. That was the case for a big portion of it. So I think just managing the puck better, not turning the puck over so much, and not defending as much, that'll help the Penguins increase that shot total. But uh, you're right. I mean, more shots, more quality shots, it's all going to need to factor in if the Penguins are going to change the narrative. Now, one of the things as well that... Looking when you look back at each of the Penguins matchups against the New York Rangers, the Penguins rarely had a full lineup in those four meetings. And I believe the only instance where they had pretty much a complete lineup was that 1-0 victory here at home. So given that, for the most part, the Penguins are a healthy team, how does that change things in terms of being able to, you know, just like we mentioned earlier, putting the regular season behind you, but also going in knowing that when you had pretty much a full team, you were able to go into each game competitive. Yeah, I think it's kind of funny. Like, after the most recent loss, Tristan Jari was asked about the Penguins' performances against the Rangers, and the first thing he said was, well, like, we've had a lot of guys injured. And it's funny because now he's the guy that's injured. So the Penguins have gotten healthier, um, but also they lost a significant piece. Um, but, you know, going back, uh, they played one of those games without Evgeny Malkin. He was a very surprised late scratch due to illness, where on the fly, the day of the game, the Penguins had to make changes to their lineup. Then another game, Sidney Crosby was out with an illness. So two of the four, they were playing without one of their star centers. Um, I mean, if you look back to the last decade and a half, it's been the one-two punch of Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin. That's, that's been the main 
force ignited the Penguins, the reason why they posted three Stanley Cup parades. So in my eyes, you know, they're keeping the core together for at least this one last run. If the Penguins are going to achieve anything in this postseason, it's going to be on the back of their stars. And so, you know, you, you could use that as an excuse. Yeah, we lost these games because we were playing without these guys. Well, that was your excuse. Now it's going to have to be the reason why you win it. You're going to have to go out and get some vintage performances from Crosby and Malkin. If you do, maybe you make it out of the first round for the first time in uh, four years. If you don't, maybe it's a, another, the fourth consecutive first round playoff. We're talking to Penguins beat reporter from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, Mike DeFabo. Now, one of the things I had mentioned in terms of the lineup construction being that Drew O'Connor was recalled as an option if needed. Is it just a matter of him, like I said, being there if needed, or is there some serious consideration that you could potentially see Drew O'Connor either in the bottom six or maybe working his way up to the middle six? He's been a really intriguing player for the Penguins, and he, he does have offensive instincts and upside. I mean, when he was at Dartmouth his senior season, he was one, one of the top five goal producers in all of college hockey. And so, as with a lot of players, when he comes into the league, he's first trying to establish himself as a bottom six type of player, and, and that's the role and that's his identity. So, if he does make it capacity, um, I think it goes back to maybe a little bit of like how they want to construct those those bottom two lines. Uh, as it stands right now, they've got Evan Rodriguez and Kasperi Kapanen on the third line alongside Jeff Carter. So uh, that line has a little bit of a scoring punch. You're almost looking for that being that that third line that's responsible defensively, but also can pitch in. And then the fourth line, as they have it constructed right now, with Brock McGinn and uh, Brian Boyle playing alongside Teddy Bluger. That's more of a clear-cut checking line and defensive-oriented. I do wonder, as much as I like Brian Boyle as a person, and I think that he brings some things that the Penguins don't have in terms of physicality, maybe that's the place that Drew O'Connor could step in. Like, if they decide that uh, Boyle isn't quite fast enough to match up against opposing teams' top lines, maybe that's when you deploy a Drew O'Connor where speed and skating is one of his biggest strengths. So uh, we'll have to wait and see or, you know, Knowing these Penguins, uh, there's going to be a guy who ends up getting sick on game day. There's going to be uh, some injuries throughout the course of the postseason. I think in some form or fashion, you will see Drew O'Connor, just a matter of when that happens. Now, one of the things that was taken away from the final regular season matchup between the Rangers and the Penguins was when Anthony Angelo got an opportunity to return to the lineup and delivered a huge hit on Tyler Mott and ultimately caused him to leave the game. And the Rangers, deservedly so, took exception to it. Do you see any of those tempers flaring up in this playoff series or the team's just going to kind of forget about it because the playoffs are much more important than something that happened in the regular season and then also given the fact that it's very rare to see any sort of fight in the playoffs? Right. I, th- I think you. the last point you made there is a good one. You, you rarely do see fights because guys realize that, uh, you know, being in the penalty box for five minutes off the team, if you're in the box, you can't be on the ice helping your team. But that said, uh, I mean, Marcus Pedersen unprompted brought up the fact that it was an emotional game and that at the end of it, uh, tempers did flare a little bit. So while I don't expect necessarily some big heavyweight 
fight at center ice to, to kick off game one. I do think that this is going to be an emotionally charged postseason series. You're going to see some post-scrum, uh, post-whistle scrums. You know, you're going to see some temper flaring from time to time. And I think it's about channeling the emotion properly for both teams. It's going to lead to them to have success. But uh, I'm intrigued by it. I think that, that by the end of any postseason series, teams don't like each other. But given the way that these rosters are constructed, and there's a couple interesting personalities on both sides of things, they've had some heated battles before, I would expect a very emotionally charged series. Now, one of the things that you brought up a few minutes ago was the possibility of this maybe being the last run with Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, and Chris Letang. And as a matter of fact, you talked to Sidney Crosby the other day about that being a possibility. And while he acknowledged it, he diverted most of the attention to the fact that they're taking it day by day and focusing on the fact that they have this series to play starting tomorrow night against the New York Rangers. Do you see that? answer as possibly indicating that there's seriously that possibility and the players in the locker room know it, or was that just an answer from Crosby to try and reemphasize the importance of this matchup with the Rangers? Well, so, uh, you know, I've, I've covered the Penguins for three years now. It's kind of funny to me that, like, every preseason and usually two or three times during the regular season, Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, and Chris Letang are asked about the possibility that this is their last year together or maybe that the window is closing. And for the most part, they typically sidestep those types of questions. But I actually felt like of the times that Crosby has been asked about this, this was the time that he acknowledged it most and said, like, yes, this could be a real possibility. And, uh, you know, from like some of what I've heard behind the scenes in terms of the offers that Malkin and Letang have received – I get the sense that, that it is a possibility that at least one of those guys is not here next year. And I think that certainly going into this postseason, Crosby, Malkin, and Latang know that. And they realize that if this isn't the last chance, then maybe next year is the last chance. And uh, one way or another, they're running out of opportunities to accomplish things together. And I think that that will motivate them. They're always going to be motivated. They're always going to be driven. But uh, especially now knowing that, maybe it gives you just that little bit of motivation to to push yourself just a little bit more. And then also within the past time here, over the past week, I should say, David Morehouse stepping away from the team after serving his role in the front office for several years. And while he cited the desire to spend time with his kids, take them to their sports practices, does that kind of go hand-in-hand with what Crosby was saying about something more potentially behind the scenes that could be brewing in the offseason? Well, my, my read on the situation with David Morehouse is, you know, he came into things with Ron Burkle and Mario Lemieux, and they gave him a lot of autonomy, and he knew how things ran with with the, that ownership group. Um, you know, at this stage in his life, he's 62 years old, he has a young family, he already has three Stanley Cup rings, I get the sense that, you know, maybe he just decided with new owners coming in and he didn't know what their vision was going to be and their expectations were going to be, maybe it was just a, a natural time to step away where there was a lot of change around him and near retirement age rather than also trying to evolve and adapt 
maybe it would just be better for him to kind of step away. It would be kind of a natural time. So that's kind of my sense of, of things. But you're, you're right that there has been a lot of change. Like Jim Rutherford stepped down a year ago. Now this. Now new owners. You wonder what the future is going to be for the core. It just feels like one thing after another in terms of change for this Penguins team. And uh, oh, who, who knows going to this offseason how many more changes are to come. And right along those same lines, if by some chance, not that either of us would want to see this happen, but if the Penguins fall short this year against the Rangers, it marks four years in a row where they've gone out in the opening round. Do we potentially see maybe more change at the head coaching position, or at the very least, does Mike Sullivan's seat start to get a little warmer? Well, the way I'll answer that question is, uh, I'm one, I, th- I think it's a, 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 a tough question. Okay, First of all, I don't think we should write the obituary until the team loses. Mm-hmm. But that said, they're heavy underdogs, and there's a very real possibility they're going to lose in the first round. And if you evaluate Mike Sullivan on one hand, he's uh, considered largely considered one of the top five coaches in the league. Perennially, he's in the conversation for the Jack Adams Award. There's a reason why he was going to coach Team USA. He has a ton of respect of the players in the Penguins dressing room, and he has a ton of respect of uh, pretty much everybody around the league. That said, a team with Sidney Crosby should not be losing four consecutive years in the first round. And if you do lose once again, I think the changes do have to be made and you have to look at every single person within the organization. And uh, this new front office, they didn't win cups with with Mike Sullivan, so you do wonder how they assess the situation. So, you know, my my read on it would be, I think there's probably an 80% chance that he, or more, that he would remain the coach even after a first-round postseason exit. (laughs) But this is the NHL we're talking about, and guys get fired for much less, so you really never know what kind of decision is going to be made. And then one final question here for you, and we'll end it with a little bit of fun. As I saw on Twitter the other day, you posted the idea of having every team in the league using the emergency backup goaltender for at least one game per season. And personally, I would love having more stories similar to the ones of either Scott Foster or David Ayers. But if you were commissioner for the day, how would you go about ensuring that that rule is followed and teams aren't going to try to manipulate their way around it? Yeah, I, I threw that out there, which I think would be a really fun idea. Uh, because, look, sports are supposed to be fun. We love good stories. And I can't remember which team used the – I think it was Dallas that used the emergency backup goalie most recently. The guy was talking about how he sells insurance and was, like, using his post-game press conference essentially as an advertisement to try to encourage people to buy insurance from him. So, uh, I, I don't know. I think you just make it a rule that you've got to start your emergency backup fully at least once during the regular season. So, maybe you just get it out of the way on the second half of a back-to-back, or maybe you do it when you're going through some injuries. Uh, I mean, I think it's just a, a fun, unique part of the game, and uh, why not encourage a little bit more fun? And if you're looking for another idea, I am an idea guy. Uh, instead of overtime, my, my, role for, my idea for overtime is – you start five on five, and every minute you remove one skater. So just the goalies skating one on one against each other in full pads. That's a free idea. You can mm-hmm. sit on that one and think about that. But uh, all I know is that Commissioner Gary Bettman might have some competition for his job, and people consider some of my wacky ideas. Now, before we let you go here, that 
reference there to the overtime format, would that just be a regular season thing, or would that apply in the playoffs as well? <laughs> I think maybe just a regular season. We, I love the, I love the the overtime games that go on for like hours and hours, and, you know, six overtimes. That's what's great, where you're like up all night and you you know that you're gonna regret it the next morning, but it's just so thrilling you can't possibly turn it off. So. We're approaching that time of year. It's the best time of year for a hockey fan, and I can't wait to get things started here. All right, that's going to wrap things up. Mike, once again, thank you so much for your time, and hopefully you've got another two months of hockey to cover. Yeah, I hope so. I'm sure we talk again soon, Drew. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Absolutely. There you have it. That was... Penguins beat reporter Mike DeFabo from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. As a matter of fact, he was en route to New York as we were speaking for game one of the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs beginning tomorrow night in New York with the Penguins traveling to Madison Square Garden to take on the New York Rangers. I thank you all for tuning in here on this Monday afternoon, and it is unfortunate that I have to say this, but this is in fact the final show here of the semester and it has been a very up and down semester of course many of you know wasn't here on the air for five weeks because of issues here in the studio and we got them back up just in time for me to deliver two more shows live to you over the air and thankfully we're able to get Mike on as he was making the trip to Madison Square Garden and as a whole, this this year has been the best for me on this show. I mean, I've had bigger guests on here than I could have ever imagined. And having someone like Mike DeFabo come on not once, not twice, but three times is truly an incredible feeling. And I just want to let you all know now, the show will resume Monday, August 22nd. That will be the first day of classes for the fall 2022 semester. That is when the Three Rivers Talk Show will resume live here on the air over BBN Online Radio. And over the course of next year, the guests will continue to make appearances. Mike DeFabo will certainly be back. We'll try to bring more of the previous guests who have made appearances. And I'll work to bring in new guests, possibly even reaching out beyond the Pittsburgh market, trying to aim for national reporters, you know, I mean, the sky's the limit really in terms of where this could go, and I'm very excited for this to continue to grow as a project moving forward, and I'm very excited that you all are going to be a part of it over the final year of my time here at Bethany College, and it doesn't seem possible that Next year is it, but that's where we're at. And as I said to Mike there at the end, just before his time ended here with us, hopefully we can see the Penguins make another deep Stanley Cup playoff run come August 22nd. Hopefully the Pirates are still in contention. If they're not, sitting at least around the 500 mark, somewhere in that regard. And as for the Steelers, They are underway in preseason, and we have a lot to talk about in regards to each of the rookie members that I just mentioned today, along with Kenny Pickett from Friday, and seeing how the 
quarterback competition continues to evolve. You are listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. I hope you all have a fantastic summer, and I will be back on the air, as promised, Monday, August 22nd at 3 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. You are listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show, and be sure to set your calendars, put a reminder in your phone now for Monday, August 22nd at 3 o'clock p.m. for the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pittsburgh Pirates.